Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. There has been a lot of discussion lately around the economic slowdown in India. But one issue which has come to the fore somewhat more recently and has gained a lot of prominence in discussions of our current economic situation is really the state of the Indian financial sector. We've seen a series of issues starting with non-performing assets of banks, non-banking financial corporations uh, which are failing, problems with the cooperative banking sector, all coming together in the last year, year and a half and creating a fresh set of concerns about the financial health of India and the overall regulation and reform of the sector. Now, it's fair to say that India has made many strides since liberalization, reform and opening up began in 1991. And even within the financial sector, we've done quite well in certain areas like equity markets. But there are many other parts of the financial sector which continue to call out for reform. And perhaps the current conglomeration of events is really a pointer to the need to think about such reforms in a somewhat systematic way. To provide us an overview of financial sector reforms in India, we have with us today Suyash Rai. Suyash is a fellow at Carnegie India with the Political Economy Program. He is an expert on India's financial sector and has worked extensively in this domain, including in helping draft the report of the Financial Sector Legislative Reforms Commission that addressed key gaps in the regulation of the financial sector. Suyash, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you, Srinath, for having me. I want to start by asking you to give us a bit of a bird's eye view of the financial sector in India. It's been in the news lately. We've had the issue of stressed assets in banks um, being in the news for some years now. There have even been private banks like Yes Bank, which, which seem to be in trouble. There has been all this stories about the non-banking financial companies, the NBFCs as they're called, starting with the ILFS issue last year, but continuing into now housing finance. And more recently, we've seen uh, you know, all the stories around cooperative banks, particularly the Punjab and Maharashtra uh, bank uh, issue recently. So perhaps you could begin by giving us a sense of what exactly are the kinds of issues that the Indian financial sector as an aggregate faces. And then we can get into details. So if you want to understand the Indian financial system, there are two basic facts that you need to start with. One is that Indian financial system is heavily bank-led. So across the world, you have different types of institutions dominating, playing different types of roles in the financial system. Indian financial system is extremely, I mean, bank-oriented. A lot of financial intimidation happens through banks. Uh, savings get transformed into investments through banks. The second important fact to keep in mind is that it's substantially, even today, uh, government-owned. Uh, if you look at public sector banks, they are the vast majority of the deposits go to public sector banks. Uh, insurance, life, as well as non-life is still very much government-dominated. Uh, These two facts uh, then kind of uh, interact with the realities of the Indian economy and create different types of situations at different points of time. So one situation you can get is a very rapid increase in lending to infrastructure because it's a government priority. You can get that. You can get relatively easy financing of fiscal deficit of the government. 
because government does have kind of a control over the uh, buy side of many of the government's own bonds. Uh, if you look at the current moment, there's a history of that moment. We had a big economic boom of sorts from 93 to 2010. From within this time from 99 to 2008, we had a massive credit boom. It was unprecedented in Indian history. Year on year in real terms, adjusted for inflation, uh, credit growth, bank credit growth was more than 20% <laughs> year after year. And uh, it just went on and on. But when the economy started slowing down, uh, one thing that we realized is that many of the firms had actually overstretched themselves. They were assuming that the boom will continue. It's a Chinese story. It will not be a two-decade boom. It will be a three-decade boom or four-decade boom. Or it will be a Singapore story, which is a half a century long boom. But that's not how things turned out. So many firms got into uh, trouble. They were not able to service their debt. They were not earning enough to service their debt. So you banks started seeing the stress. The first response to that, and this is a, where the regulatory, regulatory and institutional story begins, was to delay the recognition of this problem, allowing restructuring. There were four or five schemes for restructuring of loans that Reserve Bank of India actually allowed. And... This went on for several years. It's only in 2015 that we actually saw proper recognition of uh, what was the status of uh, banks. And March 2016 is when the uh, first report came out in terms of fully recognizing the scale. And it, then it kept increasing because there was a ongoing effort to bring out the problems clearly. Restructuring schemes were ended. Uh, as a result of this uh, process that was going on inside banks, uh, there was still a demand for uh, borrowing. Many firms were, in fact, wanted to borrow just to keep themselves alive to be able to repay the loans. A lot of this borrowing moved to NBFCs. And non-banking financial companies are uh, companies that date usually, very few of them are allowed to take deposits. In fact, in the last couple of decades or so, no new licenses for uh, uh, deposit-taking NBFCs have been given. So they are mostly uh, uh, financial firms that raise their resources in the wholesale markets. They borrow from banks, they borrow from markets, so on and so forth, and then they lend. If you look at first principles, because they don't take deposits, unless they're systemically very important and if their failure leads to a systemic crisis, we shouldn't worry too much about their success or failure. But NBFCs in India do borrow a lot from banks, which creates a certain kind of contagion risk and all of that. But a lot of borrowing went to them. And it was not just borrowing to corporates, to real estate, to infrastructure, but also a lot of consumer borrowing also went to them because there was a time in which banks were uh, hesitant to lend. They were stretched for capital. Because you should see, understand that in 2016, when we realized this, it still uh, took some time for banks to be recapitalized. They were undercapitalized for, many of them were undercapitalized around that time. So that's a story that we are seeing playing out. Cooperative banks, the story is quite similar. They also took, some of them took uh, exposures to sectors which are currently in decline, uh, housing finance, real estate, infrastructure, power, those kind of sectors. Those that took that, some will, will fail, right? Because, I mean, it's natural in economic uh, slowdown for some financial firms to also fail. But the problem with cooperative banks is the relatively weak regulation supervision. If you're an urban cooperative bank, you're regulated by RBI for banking and by the registrar of cooperative for uh, cooperation activity. So it's dual regulation, your governance, everything is under the registrar cooperatives. They have an ultimate power to take difficult decisions when it comes to these banks. Uh, if you're a rural cooperative bank, it's more complicated. These two are there, registrar plus RBI. NABARD is a supervisioning authority, which is actually doing inspection and monitoring. So these institutional problems also accentuate the difficulty. 
just to complete my point, we have a big gap in our institutional setup when it comes to the financial sector, which comes out during times of crisis. We don't have a proper law that regulate that uh, governs the resolution or bankruptcy of financial firms. Indian uh, the insolvency and bankruptcy code doesn't cover financial firms. It only covers non-financial firms. And in the last few years, we've seen the consequences of that gap. The story you're telling could could it be read as a cyclical one, or is there really a structural issue? So cycle is a part of any modern economy. Uh, so growth and degrowth happens as a matter of fact in any modern capitalist economy. But when this cycle is as long as the one we had, almost twenty years going, the bust that comes after the boom is also quite significant. We saw the failures of our regulatory system. We saw the problems in uh, of government ownership. Banking crisis in India is a public sector banking crisis. As a percentage of their assets, the non-performing loans of public sector banks is four times of what they are in private sector banks. Last I checked, about 16% plus of the uh, loans in uh, public sector banks were non-performing and only 4% of the loans in private sector banks were non-performing. So the crisis is a public sector bank crisis. And therefore, why did that happen? Because you have to go back to the way the lending decisions were taken uh, in the in that period of boom. Um, the lending to infrastructure grew by 80 times in less than a decade. It was the banks didn't lend to infrastructure much. We had development financial institutions and all for those. All of them failed or were converted into banks. So then this moved to banking. And that's one structural issue that came out clearly that we don't really have a banking system in which the decisions are fully and kind of independently taken by private firms interested in maximizing the shareholding value. Uh, we, we don't have a system in which these firms can be, the banks, for example, can, can be properly regulated for the risk that you take because the way the incentive to regulate a public sector bank, we had an instance in one day, one third of the market capitalization of Punjab National Bank uh, was depleted in one scandal. Not even one branch saw a run, right? Because, I mean, no depositor expects the bank to fail Everyone because the you know, government is standing behind taxpayers' money behind it. Similarly, our failures on the uh, institutional failures on the uh, bankruptcy side came out. By 2016, we had a modern law. It's still working its way through. Let's see where the political economy of India takes this law and the final settle or the settlement that happens, the equilibrium that we reach. Uh, we, we are still going through these pains of uh, weak and failing financial firms. We don't have a modern law to deal with those. So there are many structural I mean, problems which come out during the time of crisis. And it's an opportunity to respond to those because you should not let a crisis waste as the cliche goes. Maybe we can break it down somewhat sector by sector, right? I mean, let's start with public sector banks or banking in general of which public sector banks are clearly the, the sort of lion's share of the problem is with them. What exactly was the nature of the problem? Uh, was it, as you were saying, that public sector banks were asked to get into the infrastructure financing story? But that was also a consequence, I believe, of a decision to get the private sector involved in the private-public partnership model, right? Yeah. So when you get private sector involved in a partnership model to do infrastructure construction, it, it is a certain kind of a choice that you make. It's a political economy choice. And then you get public sector banks to lend to those companies, some of which were clearly dubious in their ability to carry out these kinds of large projects. 
and then when those projects got stuck because of various kinds of things yeah, regulatory external regulatory failures courts yeah or even their ability simply of some some companies to deliver on those projects then you basically have a banking system which is saddled with much of this bad loans the other problem seems to be to be somewhat more relaxed lending norms in the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008 uh was that an issue as well so uh from what we see in the data on credit boom the boom period in india actually uh preceded the crisis in fact after the crisis the credit growth actually declined quite significantly it's been steadily declining uh, i mean there's not been uh, anywhere close to the kind of lending rates we saw up until 1999 to 2008 so that was the period of boom on some components of lending we have seen a little bit of this for example in recent years we see the consumer lending has uh, increased significantly uh it may be because banks are looking for opportunities to grow their books in sectors where are still there are opportunities to lend you can lend against uh, people's incomes or lend against some collateral that people put up individuals are able to still do that but the big part of the story is the corporate lending story which is the infrastructure and other sectors large corporates most of the npas actually come from these sectors so earlier the story used to be very different npas were dominated by the so called priority sectors which were the farmers and the small enterprises and different sectors which are so those were sectors which the government, government had identified uh, identified that you should lend to because your developmental objectives will be met and bulk of the npas used to come from the, that uh, about 40% of the loans but now the story has reversed it's actually much more the large corporates and large projects which are funding and if you go deeper i done a study on this on capabilities to underwrite uh, loans public sector banks did not have this capability they're not structured to do this they have this model in which 3 years you spend in rural banking 3 years in international banking 3 years in corporate banking you don't build deep expertise so if you want to go deeper into institutional questions they actually relied a great deal on uh, advice by i mean consultants and external parties on the viability of a project because they didn't have in house expertise now they may have built hard way <laughs> but they didn't have that expertise so a lot of the stories actually if you look at the breakup of the uh, bad loans overall in the financial stability report that rbi brings out a lot of it is in these sectors power infrastructure sectors other large corporates where the big loans have kind of gone and is there a political story to it as well because these are public sector banks you know there are all these arguments about crony capitalism saying that you know the political class typically tends to lean on the banking sector to lend to corporates to whom they want to give uh, projects and so on and and is that an issue as well it is difficult to say whether uh, phone calls were <laughs> made of course to make a lending but opacity does help large uh, dominant players in a political economy if you are a very large firm uh, which is able to uh, which has i mean a story to tell and you are able to impress upon a bank that this project is going to work and there is a 1000 crore loan immediately that you can given meet your targets and so on and so forth then it is possible that you can take an advantage of that opacity if you had a more bond market kind of uh, borrowing market would f- figure out somebody in the market will figure out what's happening and they would call you out right but this one on one opaque relationship by base approach does favor these people naturally i mean automatically there's a and in addition they may have been uh, there was certainly a policy push towards lending for infrastructure why do you go to the banks because that's where the money is <laughs> so that's where the intimidation in india happens so the, that was all kind of there were structural reasons whether there was specific corruption that somebody made a call and said you lend to this person we don't have evidence to at least be able to say that and so this is the problem we've seen 
several attempts by the government to fix the problem. There have been infusions of capital in liquidity into the banking system. It has been done in tranches, including one which was announced in the latest budget. Uh, but is there something that needs to go beyond simply recapitalization of banks? You know, there are arguments about saying, maybe this is a moment to think about harder things like saying privatization of public sector banks. What do you think of those kinds of arguments? I think it's a very complicated problem because if you privatize a public sector bank today, tomorrow they'll be run on those banks. They are very fragile banks. Their, their robustness comes from this faith that depositors have that the government is standing behind them. Otherwise, there's not that much trust in these banks, especially because of the experience of the last few years. We've seen crisis after crisis come out of public sector banks. Some are out of private sector banks, also, but the story in public sector banks is much worse. So you need to think about it as a long term. But why can't we move towards a deposit insurance kind of scheme? So we have deposit insurance, which uh, covers up to 1 lakh rupees per depositor. And uh, this is actually fully covers about 92% of the deposits, uh, deposit accounts in the government, in the banks. Uh, although in terms of the value of deposits, about 28% is covered uh, by this deposit insurance scheme. But that's after the fact. If a bank fails, then you uh, close the bank and you pay the deposit insurance amount. But th while the bank is still alive and government is not willing to let a public sector bank close because it will create uh, havoc in the system. Depositors are also voters, right? So there's going to be a political consequence. So two things. One is you have to reduce the government ownership of, uh, of these banks, take it below 50%, but not immediately. You can't do it. You need to build, do it gradually. Uh, one by one, you can do it with a few banks. But before you do that, you need to fix the bankruptcy system, for, especially for banks. You need to, what in the US, you have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They enter the bank early when it's about to fail. They merge it with another bank uh, and keep the depositor's interest protected. Deposit insurance is a very bad way of protecting the depositors. If you study the experience of deposit insurance, even in India, it's very painful because after the bank is closed, it takes more than a year to actually get your <laughs> deposit insurance. That one lakh rupees also. It's not the way to deal with banking. Banking is about liquidity and safety and continuous access to your funds. Uh, so this is the last resort. The first resort should be resolution. Okay, so let me move on to another issue which you brought up while we were talking about banks, which is the sort of peculiar absence or immaturity of the corporate bond market uh, in the context of India, right? I was looking at some figures and, you know, the debt markets in India are less than 15% of GDP in overall size, whereas banks and equity markets are like 90 and 80%, right? So these are clearly much more developed, whereas the debt markets are so underdeveloped. So what are the reasons behind that? Why is it that corporates are forced to go to banks and a majority of which are public sector? Is it a supply side issue? Is it a demand side issue? What's the problem? If you want to talk about development of bond markets, you have to talk comprehensively about a system in which bond markets function. So there's bond market, there's currency markets, and there's derivative markets. All these three markets are linked to each other. If I, when I'm buying a bond, I'm taking a credit risk on the company that is issuing that bond. I'm also exposed to the interest rate risk. Interest rate goes up, the value of my bond goes down. You know, if you're a foreign investor, you're also holding exchange risk. So there are different types of risks that I'm holding. Some I want to hold because that's the kind of uh, risk that I think I'm capable of holding and I'll take the, get the return for that. Other risks I want to manage. So to be able to develop a bond market, you need to develop uh, the currency and derivative markets as well. But that's just the uh, finance leg of it. You also need to have develop uh, monetary and fiscal institutions in which people have faith that some stability in inflation you will maintain, uh, some degree of sanctity in fiscal institutions you'll maintain. It's not like suddenly government will decide to increase its borrowing by 3% of GDP and then the 
interest rate will go up suddenly and then therefore you you as a bondholder will be paying the price for that because if you have a stock of bonds the values immediately will crash so there is a question of building the larger system in which the bonds market the currency markets and derivative markets they all kind of function well so that's the kind of aspiration if you want to talk about it this is the way to talk about it you have to look at this one system which needs to be developed you can't look at bond market or a uh, long term bond market or infrastructure bond market there is nothing like that there is a market in which there are these kind of segments and they are all linked to each, each, each other the institutional problem in india i mean why i i, I think it's not happening is because the uh, regulation is currently quite fragmented so uh, corporate bond markets up to one year are regulated by rbi currency markets are regulated by rbi and derivative markets are regulated by rbi sebi regulates corporate bond markets for more than one year uh, maturity and uh, rbi also is a uh, banker to the government and it is also a manager of government debt it is uh, it owns the depository for government bonds it owns and runs the exchange for government bonds it also has a significant role to play with uh, along with sebi in some of the trading on uh, bond derivatives and all that happens on nse and bse and those are very small segments right now they are not not taken off to the extent they should so one thing that you have to do is where is the success on markets in india it's in the equity markets and that story is the uh, sebi nse bse story you've got clearing corporations that are working well you've got exchanges which have built modern capabilities there are days in which the liquid trading on volume and that is the highest in the world so they have built modern capabilities to do these things sebi has built some capability to regulate markets we should try to tap into that expertise bring securities regulation inside sebi that's one step take our make rbi a proper inflation targeting central bank take the role out of uh, uh, debt management out of that because that's a conflict you see direct conflict there so that there is stability in people's beliefs on fiscal and monetary uh, institutions and how they will work then it's going to happen in a step by step manner people have will first trust you to uh, uh, with one year two year money they'll not immediately start giving you 30 year money you know because you don't know where the india is where india is going in 30 years slowly you will build trust and you will full see the full yield curve liquidity across you have a six months paper one year paper five year paper 10 year paper you'll have liquidity across that's how i mean that's the story that you need to get to but uh there are steps along along the way there are regulatory reforms that need to be made there are restrictions today on who can participate for example in the government bond market you know which is the i mean benchmark paper that you have in the why is that the case i've never really understood why the government of india would restrict say foreign portfolio uh, you know or foreign in- institutional investors from buying government of india rupee denominated debt in india i mean what's the problem they do it because perhaps they think that there may might be a sudden outflow of fpis and all that might look bad for the country and those kind of reasons but this is actually not a very good reason reason to do that portfolio investment should be free i mean open as much as you want to it's just liquidity in the secondary market which is a important precondition for development of the primary market but one piece of the puzzle that i didn't talk about much but i want to just mention on this is that today the buy side is very significantly controlled by the government so there are and and by regulators there are banks are forced to buy government bonds banks are for, insurance companies are forced to buy provident funds are forced to buy and more than their prudence would require so basically government debt is crowding out other forms of bond markets and it's one market unless this part also works like a proper market where there is a actual benchmarking is happening today the government uh, bond yield is not actually indicative of the under fundamentals 
that would be my claim because it's the uh, demand side is so much constrained and is there also a problem that you don't have say pension funds in india which are quite as large as they are in other economies which then tend to be the main you know people who soak up corporate debt um, So that's a demographic way. issue. So uh, demographic and policy. Uh, for the longest time, we had the main recipients of pensions were the civil servants, and they had defined uh, benefit uh, pensions. We moved to defined contribution two thousand three, and uh, the, since then we are building a corpus of pension funds. There are some private pension funds also. They are also very small. Uh, plus, we are also very young country. I mean, the uh, median age is some twenty six or twenty seven. <laughs> Last I checked, and uh, as you grow older, uh, you pension. Uh, I mean, funds will also get larger. But globally, there are very large pools of capital, uh, which are actually currently working on a very small <laughs> rate of return. And here is India, which is a capital-starved country. And I'm talking about financial capital here, not overall. Uh, household finances is getting crowded out by government. It's the central government on and off budget plus state governments put together. Are, I mean, basically, most of the uh, savings are being cornered by them. We could benefit from accessing a lot of that, and that would also create a certain amount of uh, pressure to do reforms because unless you fix the bonds, currency, derivative, all these markets, people will not lend to you, or they lend to you at a much higher rate than would otherwise be possible. So. the demand side is very important for the supply to uh, actually respond in a manner that is suitable there is regulators to function for the government to do the right kind of things but right now that is heavily constrained in india is in any institutions any institution heavily regulated and controlled uh, by these policies where they don't have that much freedom to move okay we've talked about banks we've talked about money markets i want to focus a little bit on the nbfc or the non banking financial companies partly because it's all been in the headline but also there are concerns that the weakness of this particular sector might have as you said earlier certain kinds of contagion effects and is certainly compounding existing problems with the banks and other parts of the economy so could you just give us a snapshot of what exactly the nature of this problem is first of all when the nbfcs are a problem nbfcs are a problem only if they take deposits from uh, consumers or if their failure leads to a systemic crisis for the rest we should not worry people who are hold shares in them or give money to them will take some losses and in fact if you go back to the thinking on financial system reforms in india in the 90s in the assembly committee reports and all there was a clear mention that this is the place where innovation can happen and that's the way i think it's still valuable to look at nbfcs what has happened in this current situation is that i mean light touch regulation has meant almost opacity like there is not much transparency on who has given money to whom there is not much transparency on who has exposure to whom which has created a lot of uncertainty in the market if you have transparency along with normal creative destructions nbfcs will be will take some risks those risks will go bad they will fail and uh, those who uh, lend to them can take those losses but why can't we do an asset quality review for nbfcs the way it was done for the banking system in 2015 you can do it which i think they are now kind of beginning to do by the large ones but from first principles point of view it is not so important to intensively supervise and regulate nbfcs unless their failure is actually systemically important which we don't have a good system of rbi has a category of systemically important nbfcs but it's a very low bar so therefore because it's a low bar i think last year it was 2.5 billion rupees or higher of uh, assets so it if you because it's a low bar so there's so many nbfcs that come under it, it they're not intensively regulated what we need is 
a system in which NBFCs are properly systemically important NBFCs are identified. Those have to be intensively regulated for exposures and different things. And for them, you need to do a regular review and all of that. There is a lot of uncertainty in the market. There is a lot of uh, opacity. You should do a kind of at least with the large NBFCs review, and you have the powers to do it. So, Suresh, if you take a step back, and you've worked very extensively, uh, including with the Financial Sector Legislative Reforms Commission. That's a mouthful. And you've also worked on the sort of Indian Financial Code, which which was drafted at that point of time. Uh, You've been part of these discussions. So if you take a step back from our current set of financial issues, all of which seem to have an interlocking character, right? They're related to one another. So it's not like you can do piecemeal, one by one fixing. You know, you have to think, as you've been saying, somewhat systemically about what the nature of the problems are. And if you said that the government has to do two or three things as the first steps towards, you know, overhauling these issues and maybe moving in the direction of the success stories that we've had, like with equity reforms uh, in the past, what would be the two or three things that you would highlight as areas where the government should put its political capital in? Because as you've been saying, I mean, this is not just a simple economic or a financial issue. These are issues of political economy. Absolutely. You know, every uh, investor is also a voter. It will take uh, statesmanship to fix these issues because the current system actually works fairly well for the very powerful capital interest in India. Uh, If you have banks uh, who are able to lend to you in an opaque manner and not even acknowledge that you have defaulted on their loan and keep restructuring your loan, it works well for you because if you're a borrowing firm, firm. So it will take some degree of statesmanship to kind of go after these problems and say, okay, where do we want to go in the long run? But I'll make just a couple of points. I said many things along the way during this conversation. But if you want to address this problem, you have to go after the institutions and reform the institutions that uh, actually make the regulations and participating in these markets from the point of view of making the policies and doing the oversight and all of that. So there are two types of problems. One is the way the current institutions are structured. I mean, from the point of view of role definition as well as internal structuring of the institutions. And the other is the question of which are the missing pieces. So one missing piece we talked about is the uh, absence of a resolution authority. A bankruptcy code. Bankruptcy code for financial firms. That we need urgently. We need it yesterday. Um, The other is that we have a very fragmented regulatory system where the main regulators are four, of course, uh, RBI, IRDA, uh, SAB, PFRDA. But there's more, like EPFO is the regulator for provident fund. So you've got uh, NABAR doing supervision for uh, regional rural banks as well as rural cooperative banks. You've got a big problem of this dual regulation in cooperative banks and all, which we have to fix. I mean, over time, you need to come to a more rational and sensible approach. All of these have some political economy around it. It's not the good reasons why cooperative banks remain under-regulated and you know, somewhat in the gray space. So you need to uh, go after this problem. Second is the way the institutions work. Most of the financial regulators in India, we've studied this, actually uh, don't follow best practices of regulation making. They don't have the level of transparency in the way they make regulations, the way they implement those regulations, the way they issue orders. Uh, the internal checks and balances on, for example, if some somebody is accused of some particular violation, then the person is found guilty or, or the, there has to be a kind of separation there. There has to be some Chinese laws. Those are missing. But we also need to think about the kind of laws that we want to have in the financial system. Today, our laws are basically a legacy of, I mean, basically going back 80, 85 years. But since then, we have made many, many laws along the way and amended them and all of that. The FSLRC, Financial Statistical Legislative Reform Commission that you, you referred to, was an attempt to look at this kind of... Uh, 
uh, set of laws. There were 60 plus laws that we looked at and say, can we try to bring them together under a coherent kind of framework? Because finance is one. Now, increasingly, the boundaries are breaking. You know, you go to an insurance company, you can invest. You're not just taking a risk product. You can go to a bank and buy investment products, insurance products. The front end is a bank often. You don't really go to an insurance company to buy it. So there's a lot of this happening. So you need the, a certain degree of coherence in uh, the way risk management in uh, institutions are done, the way consumer protection is done. Today, we don't have a law in India or any law that puts a basic framework on what are consumer, what is the level of consumer protection that is promised to consumers of India. Like in UK, Australia, many countries, you've got clear, so these are your rights as consumers and you can use those rights to uh, in, in your contest with the bank or insurance company that you think has defrauded you or whatever it is, has abused its power. You need that. You need to have a coherent systemic risk framework. What is happening in India, many of the businesses are conglomerate. So one group will have an insurance company, will have a bank, will have NBFCs, will have uh, mutual funds, everything running. Each one is regulated by separate entities. And you don't even have one place where all the data is put together to see what the conglomerate level view is. And that's the direction in which the world uh, regulation is moving. So we should at least have one data management system in which all this data comes together and you're able to see who has exposure over whom and what is going on in a more dynamic way and try to understand that. So these are some of the pieces that need to be figured out in terms of the uh, legal framework that is present and the way institutions make their regulations, the way they I mean, implement those, the way they issue orders. If you do these things right, then you can hope this machinery of institutions will produce the outcome that you want to produce. Because often we talk about this policy, that policy, but there is a full institution that is actually producing these bad policies. RBI board is a very good example. It's not really an effective board. I mean, we can't say because it's not set up to be a professional board. It cannot, by design, uh, do a proper oversight of RBI, which is such a powerful public institution. It needs to, its board needs to provide a proper oversight function. It does not, it's not designed to do that way. You know, look at the central board, the way it's structured. People do other things, they come once in a while and kind of, basically agenda setting is what matters in those, in those board meetings. After that, you, the game is gone. So you need to fix those things. Then you can hope that, uh, these other things will happen. And government also needs to take a view that is the financing of his deficit the end of the financial system? Is the financing of his development priorities the end of the financial system? Or should we move towards a much more of a market-oriented system in which these things are done? Government is a participant. It doesn't get to command. And of course, we have a government which has got the you know political... Power, yes, especially that's in the both key. the houses yeah. to pass this kind of legislation. Yeah. If you have statesmanship, you have the power to exercise it. Uh, otherwise, interests will uh, drive you from one side to another. Here, ideas can, if they bring to them to the table and there's buy-in at the top, not many people can push back effectively. Not even their opposition can. <laughs> okay, and the good thing is that we have a government which has got the political power in both houses of parliament to be actually able to pass this kind of overarching legislation. And uh, I only hope that they are listening to this podcast and to you. Before we close, uh, our standard question to our guests is uh, to tell our listeners if there is anything interesting that you have read lately, which you think would help them get a handle on the kinds of issues we've been talking about. So a recent book that I read is by this ex-deputy governor of Bank of England, Paul Tucker. He's written a book called Unelected Power. I strongly recommend that book because it goes to the first principles of political theory and public administration and thinking about how regulatory and central banking powers should be structured and exercised in the context of a democracy. 
Great. We will put a link to the book on the show notes and we will also put links to your own writings, uh, which, which have been very useful in helping us think about this issue. So, Yash, thanks so much for being here today and sharing your insights. Thank you, Srinath. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India, a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage, 